Hello and welcome back, and thank you for tuning in to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, today we're talking with two medical experts, EMS field and physicians, and uh, we're going to be talking about uh, ketamine, which is, or ketamine, or ketamine, however you choose to pronounce it, but been in the news recently, uh, some articles, uh, a case in Aurora, Colorado, where uh, a suspect slash patient um, was given uh, the ketamine to, to calm down their aggressive behavior, and um, after some complications, uh, died in, uh, in the uh, ER. So with me today, we're talking with uh, Rob Lawrence, a British military veteran, our own in-house medical expert, host of EMS One articles, content, and podcast. Uh, Rob has served in several key EMS leadership roles. Um, And he's now the principal of Robert Lawrence Consulting, where his focus is on assisting organizations improve operational performance, data, leadership strategy, and techniques of government uh, and government and media relationships. So we've also got, welcome Rob. Thank you, Jim. It's uh, nice to be back. And uh, it's, I'm excited about this episode because of the next guy you're about to introduce. Yeah, me too. Um, so Dr. Will Smith uh, from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. He's an EMS physician, an ER physician. Uh, he's on search and rescue teams. And uh, welcome Dr. Smith. Tell Fill us in a little bit more about your background, would you? Hi, Jim. Thanks a lot for the opportunity to come and speak with your group. Yeah, so my name is Will Smith. I'm an EMS, an emergency medicine physician in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Do a lot of uh, pre-hospital retrieval work. I've got an Army Reserve hat, so I've done a lot of tactical and combat medicine. And I think that really blends well into the wilderness medicine where we find ourselves often. So, yeah, and then this kind of interesting dilemma that we're in with ketamine and some of the news reports that are out there definitely have been a concern and definitely would like to discuss with you guys to kind of give my perspective and the the medical side of things. Awesome. Well, welcome to the show and and I appreciate you both. Um, We'll certainly learn uh, from your experience and in particular in the ketamine case in Aurora, Colorado, I read an article and it was, it was frankly inflammatory to me when there was an illusion that uh, there's peer pressure involved by law enforcement to EMTs on scene to, to sort of pressure them into giving something, quote, giving them something. But the article I read said, you know, should police be giving ketamine to aggressive uh, patients slash suspects? And for the life of me, I can't imagine uh, any law enforcement officer administering the drug. So, um, Rob, if you would jump in first, what's you have a great EMS podcast. You talk about it with another doctor, physician, um, and you give a, 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 a perspective on it of um, the EMS or the EMT as sort of a standalone in making the decision. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, of course, the EMS provider that arrives on scene has a lot of things to do in those opening moments of arriving on that scene, particularly if a patient is in what may well appear to be excited delirium and of course they have to conduct the scene signs up they have to evaluate what's going on with the patient themselves they also have to evaluate the factors that are surrounding them in terms of what law enforcement are up to and then make very very quickly a command decision on what to do next and 
yeah, there is there are there are always those kind of you know cries where the, the cop says, can you give him something to calm him down, etc. At the end of the day, that may or may not happen. But the point being, it's a clinical decision that's taken based on many factors: uh, that of safety of both the patient and the, uh, the 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 people that are surrounding it. So it's it's a it's a it's a big ask of a guy that's just arrived on scene that has to do a lot of a lot of stuff and uh, you know by and large mostly it happens for the right good uh, and sound clinical reasons and of course there is the opportunity to go back to the the medical control in, in some cases many protocols require that a medical director becomes involved to actually again become the the, the second set of ears not necessarily the second set of eyes on the circumstance and that's where folk like uh, uh, dr smith would come in will yeah, Dr. Smith, uh, tell us a little bit about the, the ketamine and, and, and its usefulness at these kinds of scenes. Yeah, so chemical restraint is what we would consider the broader term. So we know that often the law enforcement is trying to intervene with physical restraints, and there's different ways of that. There's non-lethals. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes it gets into that lethal category. But in these experiences like Rob mentioned, excited delirium is this syndrome that we really don't completely understand. And we've been trying to learn more and more as uh, time's gone on. We used to see a lot of it in insane asylums where we would have a lot of people with schizophrenia and other mental health illness all in a tight uh, geographical uh, location. We've kind of decreased the use of insane asylums as much as we used to, trying to get more kind of uh, public uh, awareness and kind of medication compliance and other things out there. But we still see it in these cases where you have somebody that's really just acting out of control um, and excited delirium is a medical emergency. And so when you get law enforcement trying to do their physical restraints, the person just continues to be uh, aggressive, continuing to fight, they get into a metabolic acidosis. And unless you can really intervene in that process with a chemical restraint, they sometimes can go on to this basically circle of death. And so no matter what happens, until you can break that process, um, chemical restraints are really an important injunction. So ketamine is one of the chemical restraints that's out there. There's Versed, there's other medications as well. But the problem is, is with some of these other medications, like with the benzodiazepines, they actually decrease the respiratory drive. So the patient is trying to blow off all that acidosis through carbon dioxide, but ketamine doesn't cause a lot of the problems that's kind of being touted out there in the evidence uh, by the, the media. So really ketamine is relatively safe. Again, any drugs got your kind of side effect profile and we've used it a lot for the military in Iraq and Afghanistan, mm -hmm. used a lot in third world countries. So it's relatively got a safe safety profile, but it's good one. It's one of the best chemical restraints that uh, we've got out there. So is there a threat in the, the media exposure that it's, it's a bad thing or that it's happening widespread or that there are really downsides to using this? Or is it, is it something that um, will continue to have its usefulness and uh, that this is a one-off or, or it's a temporary situation where there, there's the criticism? I think it's education. And so again, not being kind of firsthand on these scenes is like Rob said, there's so many dynamics that are going on, um, trying to balance kind of what is right for the patient, what's the safest thing for the patient and those around them. 
Uh, and sometimes you just have to act. And so there's definitely the hindsight, the 2020, being able to see what happened. Um, but I think with the right kind of education, the right medical oversight, the right protocols, right education around it, ketamine still is one of the better medications that we can give for these conditions. Now, Rob, have you seen anything from the EMS side, uh, bulletins or educational um, emails saying, uh, be cautious with ketamine? Um, have you seen anything or pending legislation? So from the EMS side of the house, of course, one of the things we are, this is a bigger topic for the EMS providers as it is for our police colleagues, first of all. Um, we are worried about the politicization of this particular uh, drug in that particular location. And obviously a lot of people are looking now to, to expose the potential, you know, bad side effects or, or, or outcomes that go with it. And of course, we're talking about one case. We know that in Aurora, the, the it has been withdrawn. Uh, Colorado is conducting an investigation uh, on a national basis. Everybody's now starting to potentially review their own protocols, practices, and procedures just you know just to double check to make sure. But the general feeling is, as as Dr. Smith has already said, this is a very useful drug for the the conditions that we've discussed, and actually to withdraw it because of uh, some you know one one out one issue with poor reporting. Uh, lack of evidence is actually potentially more dangerous than, than the drug itself. And so, you know, we on our side of the, of the wall, Jim, are all watching and saying that um, there is going to be an investigation in Aurora and in Colorado. Um, we are all awaiting to see what the outcome is. And we hope uh, that, that there is a clinical bent towards that investigation. There is good medical sense applied to assessing what happened and that we don't get overtaken by the politics. And that's what that's where we are in the EMS world right now. Mm -hmm. Dr. Smith, have you seen anything else um, similar to this? I, I think I'd like to preface it by saying that, you know, I was a, a young cop in the 80s. And through my early career, when we dealt with uh, severe inebriates, uh, passed out, couldn't revive them, uh, couldn't say their name, couldn't get up and walk. Um, we were still transporting people like that in the 80s. And of course, over time, we found out that, you know, that was a, the wrong thing to do, that they should probably go with medical transport. But early in those, in the mid early 80s, uh, the, the EMTs on board these uh, roving ambulances in San Francisco, they would use these ammonium capsules. I don't know if you recall those or if you're too young to remember those, but uh, I'm sure Rob knows about them where they would pop them under the nose of these uh, passed out inebriates and they'd pop right up. It's essentially like an ammonia capsule. And over time, um, I think with the relationships between the EMTs and the cops that were constantly working together, that they'd actually hand out these ammonia capsules. And there's certainly there's hazard with something like that. Clearly, I don't think we'll ever get there with ketamine and ketamine. And um, is this like a natural extension of abuse or again, is, is it just it's it's not it shouldn't even hit that meter yet? Yeah, so I'm hitting my uh, 30th year in EMS. So I was actually an EMT and paramedic before I went to med school. So definitely I've had a lot of field experience. 
And I think there's been a lot of in-custody deaths and trying to have a lot of finger pointing over the years. Uh, kind of when I was kind of an EMT and paramedic, we used to do what was called a scoop sandwich. So where you basically have a patient that's being acted out, uh, basically put them between uh, two scoop, uh, essentially like backboards and, and keep the patient from hurting other people around them. But we found out, again, just that physical restraint, if they just continue to fight, they continue to go in the acidosis hole or kind of, uh, and, and it's difficult to bring a person out. So in custody deaths really haven't been uh, kind of something that's new. Hog tying uh, used to be something that law enforcement did and kind of really backed away from that. And so there's certainly things that you can do in these settings when you've got somebody that's fighting back, um, kind of limiting kind of the compression of the chest, just optimizing their kind of airway, breathing, circulations, all those basics that were taught. And then rapidly in the subset of patients with excited delirium, it's getting that chemical restraint on board. And still ketamine, kind of in my opinion and expertise, as well as other organizations like the National Association of EMS Physicians, which is really the national organization that uh, is EMS medical directors as well as other EMS professionals. I've really put out a statement recently because of this. So I still think there's, there's a lot of things we've seen in the past. We've still got a lot to learn, but kind of from everything I've seen or know, and at this point, ketamine is still probably the best thing as the chemical stain agent of choice. Uh, anything you'd like to add to that? No, I mean, I, I can't follow the, the statement there of, of Dr. Smith. I mean, it is, and the reason we're so concerned about losing it is because of its efficacy and its usefulness to us on the streets. And uh, for me, it's also a, a difficult subject to talk about because for years in the media, and obviously we're talking to a very discreet trade group here, the one thing that we would never talk about to, to journalists and reporters is what we're carrying on the truck. Because what I, don't, what I never ever wanted to do was to set up the 7-Eleven stop and rob type variety on the ambulance on the street corner. And so the fact that we're talking about this clearly, I think was also a risk to our providers because yes, we do carry drugs that are that may have a certain resale value. And it always concerns me when we start to talk about the stuff we're stocking. I mean, it, it's, it's a no brainer when you think about, you know, the medics are coming with stuff, but actually if we start to publicize what we have, that in itself is also a risk to the safety of our providers. And that all has always concerned me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Dr. Smith, you bring up a really good point about, you know, we're, we're limited in what we can do now. And in New York, uh, if you, lay on any part of the body much you know of course we saw the the horror of the you know the the knee on the neck in in minneapolis but now in new york uh just body weight on the weight of an individual who is clearly you know aggressive and out of control um police are being limited on the physical restraints that they can use and we're getting nothing new we had as you talked about the hobble the hog tie, the wrap. I don't know if you remember the wrap. It looks like a big, uh, like a sleeping bag with Velcro on it. And um, we've all, we've moved away from those because of in custody deaths. So do you see anything else on the horizon to help control these out of control patients? Again, I think it requires a combined approach with both law enforcement and EMS. Once you start recognizing you've got a patient that's potentially in one of these excited delirium or other conditions that uh, where they're just fighting out. And so <clears throat> again, for a, a patient or kind of a subject that's in custody or potentially getting to that point, as, as long as they continue to fight, as long as they are continuing to need physical restraints, um, especially in these excited deliriums, then you need to follow quickly with the chemical restraints. 
I think it's really important to get both your law enforcement and EMS supervisors involved in those calls very early. Because again, if, even if you do everything right, there's still potential that the patient could deteriorate. And again, getting those supervisors involved and just get more in a minds to make sure everything's being done right. And just to add to that, actually, one of the things that we discussed with my other colleague, Dr. Manifold, is the fact that uh, if you're having a policy discussion about chemical sedation on the ground with the patient, then you've missed a point. This needs to go right back to it's a function of command. It's a function of chief to chief or, or policymaker to policymaker to, to discuss how we're going to approach this. And also, if necessary, go through some sort of training exercise where the, the police officers are aware of what the medic can do, will do, possibly, you know, the scenario. And, and in reverse, under, so the medic understands the scene that he's going to walk into. And so this is an opportunity to make sure that we've just got all of our ducks in a row, if you like, before we get to that point where we're on scene, the pressure and the stress is on. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's the usual, you know, dark and stormy night scenario. And so if you haven't had that policy discussion between the EMS chief and the police chief about chemical sedation and about your approach to operations, perhaps this is one of those takeaways from, from this particular podcast. We've certainly said this already on the EMS side. So let's say on the police side as well. No, great points. Exactly. I mean, you don't want to make the decisions in the back of the, you know, in a gurney or in the sandwich and trying to figure out what to do. So what's what's ahead? What's what's next? What do you see? There's a blip on the screen. We're going to move past this, and um, are we or is this going to be, um, you know, the the cause du jour like we've seen in law enforcement, where um, people who don't understand the issue are going to try to limit uh, the use of this in the field? I'm severely hoping, Jim, that common sense will prevail, and that's about <laughs> that's about it. You know. And I think a big responsibility that we have in the medical profession as well as law enforcement is to educate the public and try and decrease some of the social and political unrest. And again, kind of leave the practicing medicine to the experts, the medical directors, the EMTs out and paramedics out there in the field and coordinating with law enforcement. I think there's a lot of videos that you can see out there of what's done wrong, but there's actually, if you Google a good uh, excited delirium in Appleton, Wisconsin, there's a good video that's out there that shows really how they do a coordinated law enforcement and EMS approach. They really take care of the patient appropriately. And again, recognizing that sometimes this just isn't a criminal, criminal matter, it's actually a medical emergency. And I think that's one of the big important things. And then realizing that ketamine is one of the best uh, drugs that we have currently uh, in our toolbox to take care of them. Great, awesome. All right, well, I think that that pretty much seals up uh, the ketamine issue. And um, I'd like to, while I have you both experts in the field and a lot of experience, I think we got like 90 or 100 years between the three of us. Uh, when we talk about the- And I've only done three years, so uh, it's you two. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, so we're talking next a little bit about, if, if you could just give me some brief opinions on the next uh, administration, once the vaccine for COVID-19 becomes available. Um, we've seen some phenomena with people locked in um, with shelter in place and acting, uh, overreacting in situations. If there is a situation where the, the government releases a vaccine, can you give me an idea how that would happen and what would be the 
force protection needs? Is there a need for uh, mass prophylaxis? Should we use um, stadiums to uh, vaccine people? Do we need police? Um, will they be orderly? Will they go through our local drugstore, our local HMO? What do you, what do you think? How's, how's that going to work? Well, let, let me lead off, Jim, with a kind of a policy perspective. And last week, uh, the uh, government released uh, the uh, document called From the Factory to the Front Lines, which was describing how we're going to roll out this, this vaccination. And when you think about it, the task ahead is that there are 320 million people in the US. Uh, it's being said that it's probably going to be a two-part inoculation. In other words, you have it once, then 30 days later you come back. So therefore, there's going to be 640 million inoculations given, providing everybody has that. So the logistics of this task, first of all, are immense. Um, the federal government is expecting each state to come up with what they call a micro plan which is the plan to work out how they're going to initiate uh, the, the the inoculation in their area they have to come up with the logistics they have to come up with the venues they have to come up with the storage because again 300 million doses of this uh, vaccine of whatever it's going to be requires probably refrigeration if not freezing and so therefore there are some you know some massive preparatory tasks to do before we even identify what the, the medium is going to be. And so those things are currently being discussed and planned in your state, wherever you are right now, because that government document uh, initiated it. And so the, 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 word of the, the word of the day is micro planning, which is what they're doing. Um, and then from there will we'll become the way that it's going to roll out. Now, we know that they've gone through a list of prioritization. In other words, which uh, you know, segments of the community are going to receive that. It's been identified that, that healthcare workers and I hope public, public safety workers are up there in the priority because, of course, we need to make sure that they're good to go first as we, before we start to roll other people in. So there will be a prioritisation at the top of the ladder, if you like, of who needs to get it in order to allow them to then continue to continue with the, the administration. And so all of these things are in your state office, your state capital right now on the to-do list. Um, and so I would imagine that we're going to have to have some mass distribution centres set up. It could well be sports stadiums. Um, bearing in mind we've been doing all the testing outdoors, I would imagine the inoculations may well be outdoors as well, of course, unless you're in Minnesota, then that could be a problem because we're going to want to do this. Or indeed, you're in, in, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming in December trying to do an outdoor inoculation challenge. And we'll come back to Dr. Smith on that in a second. But so all of these things are right now in the hopper. And of course, I would imagine, in fact, I know there's going to be some sort of police presence in order to uh, you know, help us out. If we go back to that movie with Matt Damon in when he was, you know, 67,000th in the line that day, there's going to need to be some some crowd control, I suspect. But uh, what what are your thoughts, Will? No, I think the force protection is going to be big. Again, you've got a lot of people that are going to be wanting to potentially get it. And there's some kind of concerns out there that there's going to be a large subgroup that may not want to get it. But again, those probably aren't going to be the people rushing the lines to try and uh, get their vaccination. I, I think it's just, again, good education, good planning, like Rob was mentioning, uh, good coordination between uh, state, local, federal, kind of all first responder agencies. Um, EMS is probably going to have a pretty large role to play in help distributing the vaccinations to large sub, uh, sets of the population. 
uh, law enforcement. Uh, again, I think just to, to help, <clears throat> I think the, the more organized, the more planning, the more communication, hopefully the, the smoother the rollout will be. Right, and if you divide uh, 320 million by 365, and I've already done this math for another podcast I was on, you know, the one dose is you, you're talking 800,000 a day for a year across the country. If we've got to do two parts, then, you know, it's a big number that's going to require some massive control uh, in order to deliver it both logistically and, and from a public safety perspective. Yeah, we've seen a little bit with like the H1N1 where we've got a kind of extra vaccination out there. Uh, but again, I think it's just a lot of the education and uh, making sure that everybody's kind of organized. And again, I don't, I don't know when the magic number is going to be. If I had my crystal ball, it's probably going to be in six to 18 months. I don't think this is coming tomorrow. I don't think this is probably next week. Um, highly unlikely by the end of the year, again, just making sure the safety and efficacy of the kind of phase three clinical trials are all out there and making sure that we're giving a vaccination that has a low side effect profile and high benefit for actually preventing COVID-19. Hmm. Well, I think, I, I think the, the good scenario involves some of our pre-planning that we've already done for other seaburn type um, situations. Uh, the UAZIs, the urban area uh, strategic initiatives that uh, spans the country, the, the pods that we talked about using for uh, mass prophylaxis for uh, homeland security related threats, uh, that those are all in the hopper. We've already cross-trained public health, public works, police and fire, um, and, and we've got plans in the hopper. So for law enforcement agencies out there, uh, people in those planning uh, situations in homeland security or special operations, hopefully they're working on it and hopefully in public health, their counterparts are working on it as well. I'd hate to think that at the very last minute, somebody says, oh, holy smokes, we, we, better, we better put something into action here. I hope the planning's now even before we have the vaccine. Yeah, this is, this is like planning for the hurricane, Jim. We know it's out there, we can see it coming. We're not exactly sure when it's gonna hit, but we know it's gonna hit, and so therefore all the work is going on at state level, if not within local authority levels. And I know, I think we've had more coordination between law enforcement, EMS, other first responder agencies, more than we've had in the past, just with our kind of tactical EMS, rescue task force, kind of the mass violence incidents. I think just building on those relationships that we've already started to develop. And again, I think it's just continuing to work together and all these different common goals. Yeah, and I think, that, you know, the NIMS, the National Incident uh, uh, Emergency Management Training, um, has us all talking the same language. But my biggest fear goes back to, like, the Matt Damon movie that Rob referred to, or Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, when, you know, the best laid plans, people are still knocking each other down for a 55-inch color TV that's on sale. And so human nature tells me it's not going to be as easy as we think. And um, I, I, again, I hope we're in the planning process well, where we can figure it out. Gen General von Moltke famously said that uh, no plan survives contact with the enemy. But conversely, Eisenhower said that uh, failing to plan is planning to fail. So let's go with Eisenhower for this one. Okay. Second or I that. guess we could, we could also use... Um, uh, Mike Tyson, who said everybody has a plan till you get punched in the nose. 
Okay, I'm going to come right back at you. General Rupert Smith in the uh, first Gulf War said that uh, the only certain outcome of any plan is casualties. If it's a good plan, it's their casualties. If it's a bad plan, it's ours. So let's make sure uh, it's theirs, eh? Well, the, uh, the, the one I like is my number one rule that I tell the kids is don't freak out. So if you fall and scrape your knee, if you have something else happen, the number one rule is don't freak out. And so if everybody well, can just follow that, I think that would be helpful. I, I, I think all of the above counts for this, this one, eh? Yeah. I just don't like the one that says they also serve those who stand and wait. I don't like that one. <laughs> I think an Englishman said that one, Rob. Well, my favorite one I always use, which is on every whiteboard I've ever owned, is, is if we do what we always did, we'll get what we always got. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much. Um, today, we've been really lucky to have Rob Lawrence, our EMS One uh, in-house uh, expert. And we've also been joined by Dr. Uh, Will Smith from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Uh, great experience, great knowledge on the subjects. And I'd love to have you both back. I'm sure we could use your expertise on some upcoming um, uh, issues and situations. Uh, where can we find you? Where can we find out what you two are working on? Well, if you were, I, you can follow me on Twitter at UKRobL. The accent and the Twitter handle are kind of uh, work together. Also, if you visit EMS1.com, uh, I have a weekly column there where I'm talking about a lot of similar stuff uh, to you, Jim, and obviously the podcasts that go with that. And so I'm just uh, just over the page at ems1.com, Jim. Thank you. Yeah, and you can find me, Will Smith, at uh, my Twitter handle is at WillMD911, so W-I-L-L-M-D-911, or at my website, WildernessDoc, all one word, W-I-L-D-E-R-N-E-S-S-D-O-C.com. Well, thanks again to both of you, and thanks for what you do and the collegiality that we have with you, and, and we're lucky to have you. Um, for our listeners, I'd invite you to send us an email, have any questions uh, in the EMS field, uh, write us at policingmatters at policeone.com. That's policingmatters at policeone.com. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. I'm Jim Dudley.